Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join the pastor Mike Wiggins as he speaks on Overflow. Amen. Well, before we get to our text in Ephesians, I want to share a little bit about the Feast of Tabernacles with you, and specifically about a very moving statement that our Lord Jesus Christ gave during that Feast of Tabernacles, and how that ties in to this topic of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the law of Moses required that Jewish men would make three, at least three pilgrimages every year to honor the, the, the Lord. And so these three pilgrimages revolved around three feasts or religious festivals. And so there you have them named. You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And by the way, you can find this in Deuteronomy 16, 16. You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, otherwise known as Passover. And that happens in the springtime. And then you have the Feast of Weeks, otherwise known as Pentecost. Pentecost meaning 50. It happens 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. And then you have the Feast of Tabernacles, um, otherwise known as the Feast of Booths. And so unleavened bread happens in the spring. Pentecost, that happens in the late spring, early summer. And then the, what I want to talk about, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which happens um, always in the fall. Now in John chapter 7, Jesus made a very moving statement during that third feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Before we get to Jesus' statement, we got to answer the question, what was the Feast of Tabernacles? And so the Feast of Tabernacles was an eight-day celebration that took place sometime between late September and mid-October. And so during Jesus' time, thousands of Jewish families would come from all over the Roman Empire, but mainly from Judea and then also from the Galilee area. And thousands of Jewish families would make their way uh, to Jerusalem, usually in caravans. They would travel because there's, there's safety in numbers. And so they would travel down to Jerusalem to celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles. When they got to Jerusalem, they would at that time set up these tabernacles or these booths. These tabernacles or booths were simply little shelters that were made out of branches or made out of palm fronds. And so they would get to Jerusalem and they would set up these little shelters all around the gates of Jerusalem. And so just go back 2,000 years in your mind and imagine yourself standing there outside the gate of Jerusalem, Herod's temple, is kind of gleaming in the sunlight behind you and you're looking out and as far as the eye can see, you see thousands of these little shelters made out of branches set up as far as the eye can see. For eight days, the Jews would camp out under the stars just like their ancestors did after the Exodus. You see, the Feast of Tabernacles was a time of remembrance. At night, when they would lay down and retire for the evening in this little makeshift shelter, they would have their children with them, and the parents would tell or retell the story of the Exodus to their children. And so they would tell their kids, and by the way, how many of you moms and dads understand your responsibility to pass on God's word to your children? Okay, it's not primarily the job of the Shine Children's Ministry, though that's important. It's not primarily the job of Pastor Will and Elevation in, on Sunday evenings for our students, though that's important. It's primarily the responsibility of mom and dad to communicate God's truth to your kids. And that's what the Jews did. They were good at that. And so they would be lying down in their shelters at night and they would be telling their children about how their ancestors were slaves for 400 years in the land of Egypt. But then God showed up and he, he worked through a man named Moses and there was plagues and there was a Red Sea that opened up and 1.6 million, that's a conservative estimate, Jews went through the Red Sea, right, to escape the Egyptian army. And then they would tell the story of how God provided for their ancestors in the wilderness for 40 years. And they would tell them about how eventually 
their ancestors made it to the promised land. And no doubt, while they're sleeping outside, it was an eight-day feast, okay? And so uh, after a while, for some kids, and I, I would be one of, those, of these kids, after three or four nights sleeping out under the stars in a makeshift booth, uh, you start to feel pains that you don't normally feel when you're sleeping on a king-size bed with a pillow-top mattress. How many of you guys um, don't really like camping? Let me just see your hand. Yes, I'm with you guys, okay? And so, but they would camp out for eight days. And so after a while, the kids, no doubt, would say to their parents, mom, dad, why are we staying in this little shelter outside when we could be sleeping in a real house? And so another teaching opportunity, moms and dads, it's not just, you know, you gotta have a formal time with your kids and open up the Bible and you'll preach at them. That doesn't work. You use the opportunities that God gives you throughout the day, God moments, to be able to share with them. Mom, Dad, why is it that we have to sleep outside? Well, here's why. Because our ancestors slept outside under the stars for 40 years. And by the way, son or daughter, God provided for them all through those 40 years, did you know that their shoes never wore out? Can you imagine having the same pair of shoes for 40 years? And after 40 years, they look as new as on year one. That's the miracle, one of the hundreds of miracles that God performed during the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings. And so they would share with them how the Lord provided for all their needs how he provided food called manna. Literally every morning they would wake up and there would be this manna. In the Hebrew, manna means what is it, <laughs> right? God just provided this very, um, uh, this little bread that was so nutritional for their bodies for 40 years. He took care of them. He provided manna. He provided water from the rock to satisfy their thirst while they were out in this barren desert. He would lead them by a pillar of, of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And eventually, he led them, as I said earlier, to the promised land. Now, the story that the parents would tell the kids during the week was illustrated, furtherly illustrated, um, inside the gates during the different ceremonies that took place during the Feast of Tabernacles. One such ceremony, for me at least, really drives the point home. And so every morning, remember eight-day feast, so they're camping out under the stars for eight days. Well, every morning on day one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven, the, the priest would go with a golden jar down to the pool of Salome, down in the Kidron Valley, right outside of the city of David there. And by the way, I don't know if you knew, knew this, but a great archeological discovery, one of hundreds of archeological discoveries that authenticate that the book that you have opened on your laps is God's word, was the finding of the pool of Siloam in 2004. Just 11 years ago, they were fixing a sewage pipe there in Jerusalem and they came upon these ancient steps. They called in a couple of archeologists and they uh, verified that those steps date back to the second temple period, the time when Jesus walked on the earth. And there was a pool there that was supplied by the Gihon Spring, a natural spring. And so they found the actual location of the Pool of Siloam, the very place after Jesus gave the blind man his sight in John chapter nine, he told him, go and wash in the Pool of Siloam. And so that's there. If you ever go with us to Israel, we always stop there. It's a great place to rethink these truths of God's word. But every morning during the feast, the, the priest would go to the pool of Siloam and he would fill up a golden uh, vessel or jar. And then, listen to this, he would walk from the pool of Siloam down in the Kidron Valley up to the Temple Mount to the altar right there at the temple. And as he's walking up with this golden jar filled with water, the people, thousands of them, would be shouting and praising the Lord. And then he would pour out the water there on the west side of the altar while the people were shouting and singing and praising the Lord. And not, and not only that, they would also, um, they would recite the Hallel, 
The Hallel, Hallel means praise. The Hallel is Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. So it would, it would be a verbal recitation of those Psalms. So picture it in your mind, the priest coming up with the golden jar of water, pouring it out. The people are shouting, the people are singing, the people are praising. Let me tell you something, the Jews back under the old covenant knew how to worship God. We need to learn how to worship God under the new covenant. And you know how many churches I have been in in my past where you're standing during a worship service and I've been there before where you even raise your hand, the deacons will come and escort you out of the building. That's sick and that's sad. Why? Because we're supposed to be praising the Lord. We're supposed to be worshiping our, our God for all he's done for us. And sometimes that's with clapping and sometimes that's with raising of the hands and sometimes that's shouting hallelujah and sometimes that's reciting um, words from the word of God. And so around here, we praise the Lord. We praise the Lord with instruments and with voices, with, with haze and with lights. We wanna give our all to the Lord because of everything that he's done for us. Praise the Lord right now. Let's praise him. Let's praise him. And so they knew how to praise the Lord. And the pouring out of the water was a beautiful picture of how God provided water from the rock in the barren desert. You remember in Exodus 17. Moses is standing there, the people are griping and complaining. God tells them, strike the rock. And all of a sudden you have all this water, right? So that's what they were picturing, especially for the kids. So the Bible comes alive. They realize how God provided for their ancestors in the wilderness with water from the rock. All right, seven days, they would do the same ceremony over and over. But on the eighth day, the great day of the feast, the priest would not go down to the pool of Siloam and fill up a golden vessel with water. The priest would not go to the altar and pour the water out. And the reason that he did not do that is because he wanted everybody to understand that ultimately God met, uh, uh, kept his promise and he eventually led his children into the promised land, a bountiful land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land flowing with streams, and rivers, a land where you didn't need water to come out of a rock in order to satisfy your thirst. So he wouldn't pour the water out on that day. And so on that day, the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up on the temple courtyard, thousands of people everywhere, and he made this very moving statement. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Isn't it ironic that it was on the eighth day, the last day of the feast, that Jesus made that statement? It was on the day when the priest would not pour out the water that Jesus stands up and says, come to me if you're thirsty, because I have living water for you. He was telling everybody that he's the answer, that he's the living water, and that he will satisfy that inner thirst inside of you and inside of me. Ladies and gentlemen, the answer is not religious rituals. As beautiful as the Feast of Tabernacle was, and by the way, will be one day in the millennial kingdom. All nations of the world during the thousand year reign of Christ will go and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles there in Jerusalem. As beautiful as that religious ceremony is, listen, in this new covenant age, the answer is not in some type of religious ritual or ceremony. The answer is in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. The answer is in the living water that he provides to satisfy thirst. People are so thirsty today. And not just for physical water. People are thirsty for spiritual water and they don't even know it. God has created inside of all of us this inner void, this inner vacuum, this inner thirst for him. Deep in all of our hearts, we all have this unquenchable need for something. And the reason I call it unquench uh, unquenchable 
is because nothing on earth can quench this thirst that we have down deep inside. Alcohol cannot quench the thirst. Drugs cannot quench the thirst. Money and the things money can buy cannot quench the thirst. Power, status, none of that. Sex, none of that can quench the thirst. And by the end, listen, all those things will leave you empty. And so what's the answer? The answer is right there. I have it in bold. Come to me. It's in a person. It's in Jesus. And then I have it in bold. The last sentence, it's in receiving the living water that he provides. And so, man, if you will come to the Lord, because some of you are still on the fence. I know in, in crowds this size, whether at our 9 o'clock service or eleven fifteen service, there are people that are coming here. And we're so glad you're here. But, but, but you haven't made a commitment yet to Christ. You're on the fence. You have all these questions. You have this skepticism, these doubts. And that's fine. It's fine for honest people to have honest doubts. That's why we as pastors make ourselves available after every service. We want you to ask the questions. We want to help you from God's word to work those things out. But here's what you need to know. You will never understand this book until you give your life to Jesus Christ. You'll never be able to receive the truths of this book until you turn from your sins and by faith accept the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you do that, he comes and he satisfies that spiritual thirst. He fills the void. And you won't need any kind of cheap substitute any longer. Ladies and gentlemen, alcohol cannot fill the void in your heart like Jesus can. And drugs cannot fill the void in your heart like Jesus can. And sex, as awesome as sex is within the covenant of marriage, thank God he's the creator of it. The world perverted it, but God created it. And as awesome as that gift is, it doesn't come close to filling the void in our hearts like Jesus can fill that void in our hearts. Money, the things money can buy. Power, ego, status, none of that stuff. But a real relationship with Jesus, that'll fill the void. And you will have this deep, deep satisfaction. And so the Lord said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living, uh, rivers of living water. Now look at the very next verse, verse 39. Speaking about living water, he says, but this he spoke concerning, what's the next two words? His spirit. His spirit. Whom those believing in Jesus would receive. Would receive in the future. And so when Jesus spoke of living water, he was talking about to his disciples there in the book of John, his Holy Spirit. Now let's follow this line of thinking through the book of John, okay? Look at uh, John 14, seven chapters later. The Lord makes a further promise to his disciples concerning the Holy Spirit. He says, I will pray to the Father and he will give you another helper. By the way, the reason we capitalize that in the English is because it's referring to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not an entity. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person, capital P. He's the third person of the Trinity. He can be grieved and you can actually bring joy to him. And so um, I will pray to the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you, how long? Forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, very important that you focus on those last two sentences there in John 14. He's talking to his disciples. And he says to the disciples that the Holy Spirit dwells with. In the Greek, the preposition is para. And so let's say I'm Peter or James or John, right? All right, so what the Lord is saying is right now, 
guys. The Holy Spirit is with you out here, para. But here's the great promise, last sentence, but there will be a day in the future when he's coming inside. E-N in the Greek preposition, in, speaking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so praise the Lord that six chapters later, after John 14, Jesus fulfills his promise. Look at John chapter 20. I'll set this verse up. The Lord has risen from the dead. His disciples are in an upper room somewhere. There's nothing coming out of them but fear, worry, and trepidation. They don't want to end up like their rabbi who was crucified on a cross by the Roman Empire. And so they're hunkered down, right? But the risen Lord Jesus Christ comes into their midst and he says, peace be with you. Some of you guys need that word and that word alone this morning. Some of you are filled with worry and fear and trepidation. Allow the risen Christ to enter in and say these words, peace be with you. He says, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. And then here's what he said next, John 20, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, help me out with the next four words, go ahead. Receive the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, when the uncreated, holy, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign son of God breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's coming inside. This was not some kind of symbolic statement foreshadowing Pentecost. I'll explain that in a moment. Right now in John chapter 20, the disciples, hey, beforehand, they were with the Lord, right? But they couldn't figure it all out. They couldn't figure out all the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in the Messiah. They couldn't figure all out this whole thing of suffering and death and resurrection and ascension, right? But now the risen Christ comes in and he shows them the nail prints in his hand. He shows them the scar in his side and they begin to rejoice and they begin to praise the Lord and they put their faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit who was para outside or with them came down inside of them. And likewise, when you and I put our faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead victorious over sin and death and hell, when we turn from our sins and we commit our life to him, his Holy Spirit comes down inside of us. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who you have from God, who is in you and you have from God? Therefore, you don't belong to yourself. 1 Corinthians six nineteen is another teaching, Romans 8, 9, another teaching about how our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're, and I say if, I'm not saying if you said a little prayer. I'm not saying if you're a cultural Christian. I'm not saying if your parents were Christians. What I'm saying is that if you personally are a born again Christian, then your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives inside of you and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, I'm just wondering, because it's kind of quiet this morning, but if you're really happy that God lives inside of you, can you let him know with some kind of worship and praise right now? This is awesome. He lives in you. He lives in you. Now, I agree with getting excited about this. This makes me excited. This is what changed my life from a religious person to a born again Christian is the Holy Spirit came inside of me. It changed everything. And yes, we should get excited about this. And one time, Chuck Smith uh, tells the story of how a guy got so excited about what I'm talking about right now, he made this statement, and I quote, he said, the greatest capacity of man is to contain God. Now, I agree. We should be excited about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, but I disagree with that statement. 
The greatest capacity of man is not to contain God. The greatest capacity of man is to allow the Holy Spirit to flow out of us like a river. You say, what do you base that on? Back to our main verse, John chapter 7. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes, you see that word? It's so key right there. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, here it is, out, not in, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so the greatest capacity of man is not to keep God all bottled up inside. The greatest capacity of men and women is to so submit yourself to the Lord that he fills you to overflowing and his spirit flows out of you like a river of living water, positively affecting the lives of others. That's why we're here. We're not here for me, myself, and I. We're here to be a servant and a blessing to other people. And so we've got to learn this truth. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the truth that separates dead churches from alive churches. This is the truth that will separate a dead Christian from an alive Christian. You've got to get this truth if you have any hope at all of ever being a victorious Christian in your life. You've got to get this truth. Ask God right now in your heart, Lord, help me to understand this truth of the overflow of the Holy Spirit. Because this is why the disciples changed their world in the book of Acts. And so all that finally leads us to our text today in Ephesians 5.18. So go ahead, and, go ahead and look. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. First thing he says is do not, and by the way, he's talking to Christians. Do not be drunk with wine. And I probably should just camp there for a little while. Because Christians, sad to say, need to hear that sermon. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, debauchery, right? There's no redeeming value. But be filled with the Spirit. He's talking to Christians there. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, when someone is truly filled with the Spirit, here's, there's lots of evidences, okay? Here's three. The three evidences are in verse 19, 20, and 21. First evidence, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And so you have an attitude of worship. This is what we did a little while ago in our five songs. This is why we get excited about coming in and worshiping Jesus, having that song in our heart, speaking to one another with these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Evidence number two, verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're really filled with the Spirit, you're thankful. <laughs> you have an attitude of gratitude, not complaint, not criticism. Third evidence, verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So if you're really filled with the Holy Spirit, you have an attitude of humility. You just submit. And I'm talking about husbands submitting to their wives. You say, wait a minute. It says, wives, submit to your husband. I'm not going to get to that passage until February. I'm talking about right now. We're talking about husbands submitting to their wives and wives submitting to their husbands. We're talking about submitting to your boss, but also submitting to the guy that reports to you. We're talking about submitting to having this attitude of submission. Again, knowing that we're not all high and muddy. We're, we're called to be servants and to be a blessing to others. And so ladies and gentlemen, if there's something different going on in your heart, 
other than psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. If you're complaining and griping and about different things, and if you have this high and mighty superiority attitude, you are not filled with the Holy Spirit. But first, he says, don't get drunk. Because that's dissipation, that's debauchery. The Bible has a lot to say about drunkenness. Let me just share one passage from Proverbs with you. He says, who has anguish? Who has sorrow? Who's always fighting? Who's always complaining? Who has unnecessary bruises? (laughs) Anyway, who has bloodshot eyes? It's the one who spends long hours in the taverns trying out new drinks. Don't gaze at the wine, seeing how red it is, how it sparkles in the cup, how smoothly it goes down. For in the end, it bites like a poisonous snake. It stings like a viper. You will see hallucinations, and you will say crazy or stupid things. That's God's word. And so nothing good, there's no redeeming quality about excessive drinking. Anguish, sorrow, fights, complaints, bruises, bloodshot eyes, hallucinations, and stupid words. And so when people drink excessively, right, they're not just hurting themselves, they're hurting other people. The LA Times reported last year that every year in America, 88,000 deaths can be traced to the use of alcohol. That's sad. Okay, so 88,000 people that would have been here right now died last year. Why? Because of alcohol use in America. 88,000 lives cut short. And you know what? Many of those lives were caused by drunken driving, and many of those lives were little kids that didn't even get a shot at life. uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, MAD, reports that every single day in America, 28 people die due to drunk driving-related crashes. So today, 28 families are going to have a knock at their door for some police officer giving them the, the horrible news that their son or daughter or mom or dad or whatever, brother or sister, was killed by a drunk driver or was the drunk who was killed. And so there's no redeeming quality from excessive drinking. And so with all the heartache and pain um, that excessive drinking causes um, in countless homes, why do people drink? Why? And I'm sure there's lots of reasons. Here's three. Number one, they want to relieve the pressures of life. So they look for it in the bottle. Number two, they want to be happy. Proverbs tells us it doesn't make you happy for long. Especially the next morning when you're throwing up, hugging the commode with a migraine. And then number three, they're seeking to fill that inner void somehow. And God says, you're looking in the wrong place. I don't want you to be under the influence of alcohol. I want you to be under the influence of my spirit. Here's why, because alcohol will mess you up. It'll cause you to walk crooked. You ever see on the side of the road where the police officer has the drunk driver pulled over and he tells that drunk driver, male or female, you know, it gives them a sobriety test and they always, 100% of the time, whenever I watch cops, they always think they can do it. They have this arrogant attitude, I can do everything. And so they always think, yeah, officer, I can do it. And next thing you know, they're like all over the place. Why? Because alcohol will mess you up. It'll cause your walk to be crooked. But when you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he causes you to walk straight. He causes you to be a light in a dark world. And not only that, that's not the main reason. The main reason is because, man, we no longer search for something to fill the void in our hearts. I have not searched for anything to fill a void in my heart since I was 17 years old. And so I guess 40 years now, and I'm not, I'm not saying that at all to, yay, Mike. No, it's the, the Lord intervened in my life. He entered in. He filled the void. He satisfied the thirst. 
And so I've had no need to go around looking for other stuff. Why? Because Christ fills the void. He'll fill the void initially when you turn from your sins and by faith you give your life to him, but then he'll keep filling the void as you walk in a real relationship with him. And so walk in a real relationship with him. And then what happens? And and ladies and gentlemen, I, I don't want to... Uh, misrepresent God in any way. And so sometimes there's some type of manifestation. Sometimes there's not. That's not our concern. Let God be concerned, right? D.L. Moody, when he was praying with those elderly ladies for the filling of the Holy Spirit, he prayed and prayed and prayed, right? And nothing happened. There was no manifestation. There was no feelings. But a few months later, I believe it was, or at least a few weeks later, he's walking down Wall Street and all of a sudden, bam, He gets this incredible manifestation from God of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so let God take care of all the the feelings and the manifestation. What I'm trying to teach you today is that when Christ fills your heart like a waterfall, filling a pool below, so the Holy Spirit will quench that thirst deep inside of you. And when that happens, who needs a few drinks? Look again at verse 18. Writing to believers at the church of Ephesus. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Please note, Paul Paul said be filled. He didn't say be indwelt. Why? Because these people were already believers. Therefore, the Holy Spirit was already indwelling inside of them. And so what I want to share with you again is that the indwelling of the Spirit is different than the filling of the Spirit, okay? Remember yet a little while ago, I was talking about this is the difference between a victorious Christian and a defeated Christian. And when I say victorious Christian, I'm not saying sinless perfect at all. Sometimes victorious Christianity is keeping your head above the water for a little while, right? So here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you'll get this right now, if you'll tune in right here, you gotta understand the indwelling of the Spirit's different than the filling of the Spirit. And I wanna prove that to you by looking at the Greek grammar. And so check this out. The phrase be filled in the Greek has at least three tenses. There's more, but I just picked three. It's in the present tense. That means that being filled with the Spirit should be a continual thing. It's not a one-time thing. I was filled in the Spirit back in 1955. Yeah, and you're acting like a jerk now. You need to be filled again. You're always complaining now. You're always grumpy now. You need a fresh filling with this. That, listen, that's biblically and theologically accurate to use the, those words. You need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. You don't need to be indwelled again. The Spirit has sealed you until the day of redemption. He's in there. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But this is, I'm talking about a a new dynamic here. And that always makes people a little nervous. But I'm teaching you straight from the word of God here. It's in the present tense. They were filled, the disciples were filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter two. And then as you continue to read through the book of Acts, they were filled again. And then they were filled again. And then they were filled again. Why? Because life is hard. And because there's lots of ministry. And we can't do it in our own strength. And we need the Lord. Somebody asked D.L. Moody one time, why do you pray every day for the filling of the Holy Spirit? He says, that's simple. It's because I leak. (laughs) It's in the continual tense in the Greek. There's some truth behind old D.L. Moody's words. Imperative tense, that means it's a command. Why? Because God knows that we can't be a victorious Christian without this, so he commands it. And then it's in the passive tense. That means that we have to be compliant. We don't work it up. It's not like, you know, we can't work it up. He's gotta bring it down. We're not um, filling ourselves. He has to fill us but we have to be compliant. So what does that mean? That means, and sometimes, you know, be filled with the spirit. You see in other places, uh, this person was filled with jealousy or filled with rage. What does that mean? Jealousy controlled them, rage controlled them. When someone's filled with the spirit, the spirit's controlling them, right? And so 
when you think about the passive tense, be compliant, that means that we have this attitude of submission to the Lord as he reveals his will through his word and by his spirit. Um, it's not up for debate, it's yes, sir. Right, more of you would be filled with the spirit if you learned those words, yes, sir. And so we yield ourselves to the Lord. We don't work something up in some kind of emotional frenzy. It's different than indwelling. You remember the disciples, okay? In John chapter 20, the Holy Spirit, para, was outside of them. Jesus breathed on them as they put their faith in the risen Lord, and the Holy Spirit came, Greek preposition, en, them. So he's in them. Then you fast forward a little bit from John 20, and you get to Acts chapter 2, and now check out what, I'm sorry, Acts 1. Look at the promise that Jesus gives those indwelt with the Spirit disciples. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come, new preposition, upon, or E-P-I, epi, upon you. And then, the idea is, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so he doesn't use, and I believe in every, listen, I believe in the inspiration of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, but I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. I don't just believe in plenary that the whole thing has been breathed out by God through faithful men as they wrote. I believe in the also verbal. I believe every word, every Hebrew word, every Aramaic word, every Greek word in the original text was absolutely breathed out by God. And so when you look at the word upon, it's not en. Why? Because they're already believers and they already received the Holy Spirit as an indwelling presence in John chapter 20. And so now this is a new dynamic. He's promising them the Holy Spirit will come upon EPI. What does that mean? That means to come upon and fill to overflowing. This is the missing element in churches today, right now. This is it. And some people in my background would run away from this truth because they don't want the emotional frenzy. They don't want people running around, doing laps, swinging from chandeliers, screaming out and shrieking. But that has nothing to do with what we're talking about now. It's so sad that we don't talk about the day of Pentecost because we don't want our services to get out of control, but we're missing out on one of the most important parts of the Bible for our Christian lives. So when was Acts 1-8 fulfilled? In Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. Jesus made good on his promise. And so what happened was the Holy Spirit didn't come in them. He was already in them. He came upon them. It says, and they were all, what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. So imagine in your mind, 120 disciples, believers in Christ, indwelled by the Spirit. They're praying. They're in, they're in this room. They're, and all of a sudden, what happens is a, this, this mighty rushing wind, a manifestation from God, comes. And all of a sudden, there's this vision of fiery tongues over every one of their heads. And it says that the tongue sat upon, E-P-I in the Greek, Greek preposition, upon or overflow, upon them. And then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues. In the Greek, that's languages, as the Spirit gave them evidence. And so what happened, okay? Here's what happened. In John 20, they put their faith in the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus breathes on them says, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, living water, was para outside of them. Now he comes inside of them in John chapter 20. But then Jesus says, I've got something else for you. How many of you guys are glad Jesus has something else for us? I am. So what's the something else? He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit, E-P-I, comes upon or overflows you. And they were there and they were filled with the Holy Spirit overflow. And the Holy Spirit now, 
He's coming out of their lives. The greatest capacity of man is not to keep God bottled up inside, is to allow the Holy Spirit to flow out like a river of living water, positively affecting the people around you. But see, here's what happens in the church. People get off on side issues or secondary issues. And they say, look, Pastor Mike, they all spoke with tongues. Does that mean everybody speaks in tongues when they're filled to overflowing with the Spirit? I would just ask you this question. Every time someone's filled with the Spirit, is there a sound of a mighty rushing wind? Every time someone's filled with the Spirit, is there a vision of a fiery tongue coming down on them? And so the answer, the biblical answer is no. And you got to understand me, okay? I believe in all the gifts. I believe in the gifts of tongues. But here's what I know biblically. Some have it, some don't. And when you look, here's your biblical reference to read later. At 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 30, Paul asks the question, do all have the gift of tongues? And right there in the Bible, the answer is no. Just like all don't have the gift of teaching, all don't have the gift of administration, all don't have the gift of prophecy, so all don't have the gift of tongues. But what happens is that the, the, the devil knows that this truth right here will change a defeated Christian into a, a victorious Christian, and so he throws in all these arguments, and you got the whole church arguing about tongues. Please, we don't do that here. We don't get off on secondary issues. We look at the primary issue, and the primary issue, again, is in Acts 1.8. Here it is. You shall receive, what's the word? Power. That's what you need right there. You need power to live the Christian life. That doesn't happen when you're indwelt by the Spirit. That only happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power. Anybody need power in the house? I do, every day, especially in this world that we live in, with all the temptations that come at us every day. We need power when the Holy Spirit has come upon, filled you, and then you shall be, here's the primary issue, witnesses, right? The greatest capacity of man is when the Holy Spirit flows out touching the lives of others, positively affecting the lives of others. He's using you now as he's drawing lost men, women, teenagers, boys and girls into a relationship with himself. And I look back at the men and the women that he used in my life who were dripping with the Holy Spirit. And as a lost person, I was attracted by that. There was some, something different about that. There was a spiritual dynamic. There was a power. There was a victory in their life. And they weren't self-righteous about it either. They were humble people, submissive people. And, and the Lord will use that in my life to draw me. He wants to use you. And he wants to use me to do the same thing today. So Peter, filled with the Spirit, begins to preach on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people give their lives to Christ and are baptized. I would say it's a pretty good Sunday. 3,000 people. Why? Because he wasn't just indwelt, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Before Pentecost, there's nothing but fear, trepidation, worry. Right now I'm describing some of your lives. Fear, worry, trepidation. Before Pentecost, after Pentecost, there's a river flowing out of love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. It's a torrent of love. This is what we need, folks. We need love coming out of our lives. Not bitterness, but forgiveness. Here's your last point. Allow the Spirit to fill the void in your heart. Okay, so as the worship team comes up, let me just explain the two parts to this last point, okay? 
because it, it involves two groups of people that are here today, maybe two groups that are watching online, listening on your mobile device. Two groups. Group number one, allow the Spirit to fill the void in your heart. How does that happen? That happens when by faith you commit your life to Christ. That happens when you turn from your sins and you receive Christ. He said, come to me, all you who are thirsty, and I'll, I'll give you drink. And so that's how the Spirit comes inside of you. It's through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Second group, describing all the Christians, and then allow him to flow out of you so that you can be a blessing to others. As I said earlier, we need a fresh filling with the Holy Spirit. Some of you this morning who are here today, I don't know what's going on in your lives, but you need a fresh touch from God. You need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. But what I gotta share with you is that he doesn't fill dirty vessels. He fills clean vessels, and we can't clean up ourselves. We need the blood of Jesus. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.